welcome to rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. And in our second season, we are focusing on rhetoric and religion. Today, we discuss the power and mystery of fire and brimstone sermons. But first, let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started. Qui sententiam suam uel minuere neque enem quasi stans aqua et serpentia mentem poscit. Mm, that reminds me of my wife, Tim. All right. <laughs> Is that a good thing? Uh, let's say yes. <laughs> All right, Tim, what are fire and brimstone sermons? As the name implies, they are sermons that focus, sometimes in gory detail, on the fate that awaits those who die in a state of sin and are condemned to eternal damnation. You know, Tim, I'm going to be honest with you here. Uh, I have no idea what brimstone is. I come from a long line of plumbers, not masons. All right. In both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, many a condemned person or population, including, for example, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, are rained upon by fire and brimstone, which is an archaic name for sulfur. Etymologically, it means burning stone. You know, Tim, I'm going to be honest here again, and I have no idea why people hate sulfur. Is it is it just the smell, or is it do they not like words that have the word ulfur in it? <laughs> Actually, sulfur doesn't smell bad, but some of its compounds do. That's like saying a hamburger doesn't smell bad, but some of the ingredients do. Not exactly. One compound of sulfur is hydrogen sulfide, which smells like rotten eggs. So imagine you and a billion of others are burning in hell. Instead of it smelling like a giant Memphis barbecue, it smells like rotting corpses. You know, Tim, if uh, if hell smelt like a giant Memphis barbecue, I think the uh, the impression that it leaves on some people would be far different than what it is today. Um, but I'm taking from all that, uh, the rotting corpses and rotting eggs and all that, uh, the fire and brimstone speeches are uh, trying to discourage people from doing certain things so they don't have to endure the aforementioned rotting corpses and eggs. Pretty much. But wait, there's more. Free shipping and handling? (laughs) Something like that. But first, let's talk some theory of hell. For starters, fire and brimstone sermons are largely a Christian phenomenon because, for one thing, not every religion has hell. You know, uh, I've heard that before, and I'm curious. Are there people who go out and shop for religions to see which they can get the best deal? Um, They could do that, but there might be some unintended consequences. Okay, so what are some of these religions that that do and don't include hell? Religions that feature reincarnation don't have much use for a place of eternal damnation. If the soul of a deceased person is normally plugged into a new body, there will be little need for a place to roast on sulfurous coals for an infinite span of time. Kind of like uh, when I first started cooking those cheeseburgers. That was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Adherents of such religions can still experience some punishment for sinful behavior, including a limited engagement of torture between incarnations, or they could just be immediately born into a crappier existence than the last one they had. Are you telling... So there's religions that do include hell. Are you saying that Christians have a good hell? Or wait, so is a bad hell good, or is a bad hell good or a good hell bad, which I don't know. Dave, if you think back to our episode on homiletics, we learned that Augustine... I be, wait, St. Augustine, the a.k.a. Bishop of Hippo? Yes. He was a pagan rhetorician before he converted to Christianity and became one of the most influential fathers of the church. So you're telling me uh, Augustine invented hell? 
No, not by a long shot. Yeah, I thought Persians? it was my. I thought it was my mother-in-law. <laughs> no. That's going to get you in trouble. No, it's not. She loves me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Uh, not by a long shot, versions of hell had been around for millennia in both Eastern and Western religions, in monotheisms and polytheisms. But the particular version of hell that shows up in the fire and brimstone preaching of the American Christian revival called the Great Awakening has a very Augustinian feel to it. So just as Henry Ford didn't invent the automobile, Augustine didn't invent hell, but he was instrumental in developing a functional version of hell that everyone could afford. What are the uh, hallmarks of Augustinian hell? The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy claims that, based upon his interpretation of various New Testament texts, Augustine insisted that hell is a literal lake of fire in which the damned will experience the horror of everlasting torment. They will experience, that is, the unbearable physical pain of literally being burned forever. As for how such torment could even be physically possible, Augustine insisted further that by a miracle of their most omnipotent creator, they, living creatures who are damned, can burn without being consumed and suffer without dying. This is from City of God, Book 21, Chapter 9. Such is the metaphysics of hell as Augustine understood it. The idea of something burning and never being used up is is a neat idea. And given that the uh, there's this liberal... Uh, um, deregulation of marijuana. I mean, if they could harness that into that industry, I mean, the profits would be, well, I guess actually it would put them out of business, wouldn't it? It, it could well do that. Huh. Well, but that's not how things work, right? At least in my world is my understanding. Uh, uh, things just don't burn up and stay around forever. So how does hell, how does Augustine kind of support this claim that uh, people can burn forever without being consumed? His first piece of evidence tells us that in springs of water so hot that no one can put his hand in it with impunity, a species of worm is found, which not only lives there, but cannot live elsewhere. I'm not, I'm not buying that, Tim. Okay, then Augustine plays the omnipotence card. Yeah, God can create a place where the bodies of the condemned can burn forever without ever burning up because he is omnipotent. In addition, Augustine backs it up with what philosophers now call the epistemic theory of miracles. Tim, I'm not going to lie to you. When I first heard about the epistemic theory of miracles, um, I didn't know what to think. I, I don't know <laughs> if I did that. That was popular in the 70s or the 80s. I don't know. But So tell me more about this epistemic theory of miracles. That means when we witness an aberration in nature, such as a star suddenly appearing in the heavens and changing color, it may not be evidence of something contrary to nature, but rather the event does not agree with our understanding of nature or fit our picture of nature or that it thwarts our expectations as to how the world should behave. You know, Tim, that's pretty clever. Uh, that didn't work for me when I wrote all my papers in school when it said, no, I'm right. The facts have to conform to what I'm saying. Um, but maybe I just prefer the idea of the world conforming to what I think. It just seems easier that way, you know? Okay, Dave, let's do a thought experiment. Dave, imagine you are a well-behaved man. You've already lost me, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're a well-behaved man in colonial New England attending church on a Sunday, but you aren't particularly concerned about going to hell. What are some of the main reasons that you are not fearing hell this Sunday? Hmm. So this is a thought experiment, right? Right. Okay. Um, so what are some of the reasons I'm not going to hell? Uh, I'd say one, uh, I'm not a bad dude, right? I'll start a fist fight every once in a while, but I'm a pretty good dude. Uh, I have my faults, 
so my wife might say. But I'm pretty good. I'm basically good. Uh, I would think in this thought experiment, God is good. Uh, and he has no reason, or she has no reason to smite me. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what else could I think of? Uh, even if I, you know, God's not happy, uh, he or she probably has, you know, more important things or more important pressing people to can, uh, deal with rather than, you know, good old Dave Dewberry. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, the devil. The devil might be a real, might be real. Uh, but I haven't done any bargains. I've not, I've not done any Robert Johnsons at the crossroads, right? I can't play the guitar all that well. Um, do like his hot sauces, right? The devil, El Diablo. Uh, though, let's see, what else? Um, the occasional temptations that I might have are not nearly a bad enough for me to suddenly be damned for eternity, right? A cheeseburger here and there isn't going to put me into the depths of hell, is it? I don't think so. No. Uh, pretty good health. I'm in pretty good health, despite the uh, aforementioned godlike worship of cheeseburgers. Uh, as a, uh, let's see, I've cleaned the land of the natives. I feel pretty safe, right? There's nobody coming after me. Uh, baptized as a child. And, you know, the best deal about that is, uh, aside from the eternal salvation, is the free underwear they give you. And, you know, a free passport into heaven and free underwear. You can't beat that. So, um, I don't know. I'll probably come up with some more, but I would think that's it. Dave, excellent job. Oh, nice. You just... You just wrote the outline for Jonathan Edwards' argument in his immortal sermon, Sinners in the Hands of God, about why you should be terrified of going to hell, possibly as soon as this afternoon. No way. <laughs> way. Total way. So so are you saying that Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God uh, is the best fire and brimstone sermon there is? Not by a long shot in my book, but that may be because of the circumstances under which I was first subjected to the Sermon on Hell, as written by James Joyce in his A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Mm. That sounds like some hell that you went through in education, your educational experiences. Indeed. All right. So you're saying that's not a real fire and brimstone speech. That doesn't seem to be what you're saying. Um, but it's is that even a real speech? Well... You, you raise a good point there. And uh, James Joyce was not only a great writer whose literature was clearly impacted by the Augustinian notion of hell. Do tell. I haven't read it, long, Tim. I'm not going to lie to you. Long before Augustine, ancient Greek and Roman literature included visits to Hades by Odysseus and Aeneid. But that is not the same at hell that is found in Dante's Inferno or Milton's Paradise Lost. So what Dante, I'm familiar with his work, uh, he gets his hell from Augustine? Yes, but not directly. Dante gets his hell from Summa Theologica of St. Thomas Aquinas, who got his hell from a whole passel of sources, including Augustine. Are all these writers just stealing each other's versions of hell uh, for their novels and their sermons? I mean, if they are, it seems like that's a sin, right? Matter of fact, it is, and it can get you placed into the eighth circle of Dante's hell, the very same one reserved for panderers and flatterers. Hey, I don't know if you saw this. Uh, this was on the news earlier today, uh, that they added a new level of hell. Oh, really? Yeah, it's for the people who cook cheeseburgers. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so back to this, uh, the James Joyce sermon and, uh, and a portrait, what is it, a portrait of the artist as a young man. So what makes uh, that fire and brimstone speech so good? Well, let's just take a listen and see what we hear. Okay. Now, 
let us try for a moment to realize, as far as we can, the nature of that abode of the damned which the justice of an offended God has called into existence for the eternal punishment of sinners. Hell is a straight and dark and foul-smelling prison, an abode of demons and lost souls, filled with fire and smoke. The straightness of the prison is expressly designed by God to punish those who refuse to be bound by his laws. In earthly prisons, the poor captive has at least some liberty of movement, were it only within the four walls of his cell or in the gloomy yard of the prison. Not so in hell. There, by reason of the great number of the damned, the prisoners are heaped together in their awful prison, the walls of which are said to be 4,000 miles thick, and the damned are so utterly bound and helpless that, as a blessed saint, St. Anselm, writes in his book on similitudes, they are not even able to remove from the eye a worm that gnaws it. That doesn't sound fun. (laughs) But wait, there's more. He dedicates a paragraph each to its darkness, its stench, and then gives three paragraphs on the fire of hell, with the second one being, I think, the winner. Our earthly fire again, no matter how fierce or widespread it may be, is always of a limited extent. But the lake of fire and hell is boundless, shoreless, and bottomless. It is on record that the devil himself, when asked the question by a certain soldier, was obliged to confess that if a whole mountain were thrown into the burning ocean of hell, it would be burned up in an instant like a piece of wax. And this terrible fire will not afflict the bodies of the damned only from without, but each lost soul will be a hell unto itself, the boundless fire raging in its very vitals. Oh, how terrible is the lot of those wretched beings. The blood seethes and boils in the veins. The brains are boiling in the skull. The heart in the breast glowing and bursting. The bowels a red-hot mass of burning pulp. Tender eyes flaming like molten balls." That sounds exactly like my experience when I first took Latin. <laughs> All right, Tim, you're a very learned man. You read many a great books. Mm-hmm. But let me share with you some words from another great philosopher, artist, writer. And that's the king, Elvis Presley, who wrote Just a Hunk of Burning Love. I think he captures the idea way more succinctly. Uh, and it's basically the same thing, right? And so while we're talking about flames and whatnot, there's also another uh, 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 a great artist who's known for, dare I say, his Flammi Vomo. You know it, right? Absolutely. That's a relatively rare Latin epithet found in an 8th century hagiography by Anglo-Saxon St. Guthlach. You can even find it in the poetry of the 16th century French humanist, whom some regard as the best Latin stylist of the Renaissance. You can also find it in another, another saint a saint of rock and roll. I don't know if you've ever been to a Kiss concert where you have a giant demon belching fire and spitting blood over his gargantuan tongue as he rocks his bass in power and glory. <laughs> I have not had that experience, but I think it, it uh, probably matches pretty nicely with other versions of hell. Take home points. What do you got for us? Okay, I want to. I keep wanting to connect the fire and brimstone sermon to Monroe's motivated sequence. Hellfire is a great attention-getter, and what could be stronger need than not to burn forever? But the satisfaction and visualization steps function in reverse. Instead of visualizing the great outcome of the right choice, the audience gets a gory visualization of the wrong choice. The action step is to repent, embrace the Lord, and amend your ways. Amen. You know, Tim, uh, that's a good point. 
And I would say, as you know, I'm quite familiar with Alan H. Monroe. Uh, read many of his works. And did you know his persuasive speaking uh, formula? When We should probably do an episode on that um, at some point. Uh, uh, he believes can be used not just for persuasive speeches, but also for informative type speaking, uh, special occasion speaking. And I did a little light research uh, and found that a number of, of uh, holy figures, uh, religious speakers, use Monroe's motivated sequence as a way to do that. And I don't think there would be any... Uh, Monroe would have no issue with moving the steps around to suit whatever purpose needs to be done. Uh, I think he was clearly open to that. So, Tim, That's you, got fascinating. A, you got a challenge for me? I thought I had one, but I can't seem to recall what it was. Ah, then that means I went by default. The two sweetest right. words in the English language. <laughs> <laughs> That's from The Simpsons. All right, I got one for you here, Tim. <clears throat> we okay. talked about uh, sinners, right? Yeah, the sinners in the hands of God speech. Uh, as an example of a fire and brimstone speech. But didn't we also call it a Jeremiah in the first speech? Or in the, I'm sorry, in the previous we called it. Uh, uh, we talked about that in the previous episode of the Jeremiah. It was so identified, and it is a Jeremiah in that it warns that since the covenant was broken, there will be hell to pay. But subsequent atonement and reward is possible. But the main thrust of Jonathan Edwards' sermon is that hell is real, and that you, sinner, are in danger of eternal damnation, and it could happen at any moment because the world is filled with slippery places, and Satan is ever ready to grab you. Hmm, that doesn't sound good. All right, Tim, we good? We're good. Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. Okay, we've landed on fallacy. Today's fallacy is uh, the appeal to fear. So Tim, when fear is used without any evidence or reason to get others to act and think in a certain way, that's, that's a fallacious use of, of fear, right? Yeah. But if, but, if, you, you but if it has what it's, if it has reason and evidence to suggest fear, that's not a fallacy. Isn't that right? I'd, I'd say so. If, if you don't do whatever, then something bad will happen to you. Um, it, it's a very common, very popular, but these fallacies don't hold up to scrutiny or counter-argument. Because, you know, you you trigger people's fear and uh, uh, emotions and they panic and they just kind of shut down that logical thinking? Yeah, and I think um, if someone makes an appeal to fear and then someone comes back and says, okay, your fear of flying is statistically out of whack given that you're 130 times more likely to be killed in an automobile accident. Mm-hmm. Um there's some some logic and some reason and some data that should convince them that they should not fear flying, but it's just another case where emotion seems to outweigh reason mm-hmm. uh, with relative ease. Yeah, and I guess it depends, you know, because I'm a big fan of multiple audiences, our current situation where we're, you know, people are being uh, uh, required to wear masks, right? And mm-hmm. so there's there's a fear that if you don't wear the mask, you will get sick or, or help spread this disease, this pandemic. Some people believe that. That would not be an appeal to fear, as a fallacious appeal to fear, because there seems to be some quite hard uh, evidence and support to back that up. And, indeed. 
And then that also raises the issue of the authority of the person who is making the appeal to fear. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've got some uh, medical doctors and some epidemiologists. What do they know? Who have... (laughs) <laughs> who have some data that says, okay, you can greatly reduce the transmission of this disease uh, if both you and your audience are wearing masks. But when we think back to uh, Jonathan Edwards and Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, we have a situation where to many of the people in the congregation, the person giving that speech has a particular level of authority, maybe even absolute unquestioned authority. Mm-hmm. So there's a case where... Qualified immunity? To, yeah, exactly. <laughs> qualified immunity. And so therefore, their appeal to fear uh, is especially powerful. Good stuff to think about. Indeed. This episode is sponsored by Celebrity Saliva. Tim, tell us about it. Every competitive athlete or job applicant knows where to purchase a drug-free urine sample, but DNA tests are harder to fake. For years, a certain gentleman claimed to be a close relative of Sir Winston Churchill, only to discover, much to his chagrin, that it was actually related to Churchill's chauffeur. And the socialite who said she descended from the Romanovs turned out to descend from the Tsar's swineherd. What's an aspiring social climber to do now that science can certify family relationship with a swab of the cheek? That's where we come in. We are CelebritySaliva.com. For a modest fee in the low three figures, you can purchase a vial of celebrity spit from a wide array of the rich and famous whose lifestyles you wish to emulate. For those who aspire to Northern European ancestry, for a modest surcharge, you can even request saliva samples free of even the slightest trace of Neanderthal DNA. So the next time a friend claims her ancestors came over on the Mayflower, show her your chart leading back to Christopher Jones, the man who owned that damn ship. That's CelebritySaliva.com, where your glorious past is only a cheek swab away. I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University, and this has been rhetoric rama a podcast about all things rhetoric. If you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun, or consult your local library if it's open. And if it is, stay six feet away from people. Ha <laughs> ha